This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 114 with Scott Mulrath on giant brook trout in Labrador. Uh, well, I start every episode by getting a background on my guests and how they got into fishing. So I'd love to hear how you got your start in the fly fishing world. Yeah. Well, thanks, Katie. Thanks for having me on on your podcast. Um, so, you know, I was, I love to fish. That's where it all started, right? And it, I think it was always kind of minnows under a bobber and lakes around the Bay Area. Uh, and then my dad, when I was 13, decided we were going to learn how to fly fish together. Um, and... So, you know, he, he kind of looked around Northern California waters and settled on uh, the Fall River in Northeast California, which is about, oh, it was about an hour east of Redding for those that know Northern California. And um, so this was going back quite a ways because I'm, uh, I'm 53 now and I was 13 then. So it was uh, really learning how to fly fish early on on the Fall River, Hat Creek, when the fish were actually still kind of dumb, which was great. Um, and, uh, and then we went from there. And what what was the prompting for like, hey, we're going to learn to do this together? I, I don't think I've heard that you know, origin story before that a dad just decides like we're going to tackle this this new style of fishing together. Yeah, well, we, we just loved to fish together. And I think it was just and anything my dad does or did was always super cool to me. And I was like, yeah, I'm all in, dad. So <laughs> you figure it out and let's go do it. So. Yeah, so he uh, he researched guides, and we ended up uh, hitting the Fall River, and uh, did so repeatedly for for many many years. I still go there routinely. 
And now tell me how you got from there to where you are now, because I know you've been fly fishing ever since, and it sounds like you've done a ton of travel, which I know we'll go into, but um, you know, how, what, what takes you from Bay Area to really dry Nevada? Because uh, we were just talking about that before we got on, but what, what brings you here? Yes, well, you could say I, I followed my wife. Um, I knew who I married. She's an academic who got her degree in uh, history from Cal Berkeley, and uh, she ended up getting a tenure-track position at UNLV, um, back in 2001, when those uh, jobs were hard to come by, still are hard to come by. And uh, so I said, sure, let's do it. And uh, so we up and out, went to, came to Southern Nevada, figured we'd only be here a few years. And uh, here we are 22 years later with kids that are native Nevadans. So that's the way it goes. So tell me what the fishing is like around Nevada. I know you said the opportunities are a little bit limited close by, but how does one make the best of living in Nevada when, when they're a passionate fly angler? Well, when um, I kind of had to re- my, reinvent myself professionally when we, we moved from the Bay Area. And so I, was in, I went into commercial real estate. Um, in the Bay Area, I was in marina management. I was actually a harbor master, which afforded me plenty of cool opportunities to fly fish in and around the, the Bay. Um, but I wanted to be by water. So we actually, after looking around in homes, we, we settled in Boulder City, which overlooks Lake Mead, uh, which is just outside of the Vegas Valley. It's If you've ever been to Hoover Dam, you drove through Boulder City. And uh, so I kind of gravitated to trying to figure out the striper fishery on, on Lake Mead with mi- mixed success. There was you know, when you'd have the uh, hardware, I mean, they'd throw like these, they still do like eight inch plugs, they call them Allen Cole plugs or AC plugs. And the gear fishermen could, you know, you could throw those things forever. And a fly caster, you're, you're having to get in on a striper boil, you know, 100, 120 feet, 150 feet, so you can cast. And uh, the gear fishermen didn't like that. They'd be chucking their lures over your boat. And so it, it never blended too well with the, uh, the other fishermen because I'd be looking for those pods of uh, stripers. Um, so I, I kind of figured out other avenues on Lake Mead to, to catch a few fish. But uh, it, it's fun. You, you, uh, you make the best of what you got. Uh, are, you, are you willing to share any of your secrets? I'm kind of curious now, like how one, how one targets fish that are kind of made for gear fishing when they're determined to use a fly rod. Yeah. Well, if you can get to a boil before the gear fishermen and, and enjoy it a bit uh, before they converge, but it's an early morning on Lake Mead and everybody's just cruising, looking for these boils, right? So you end up generally having to kind of go work some of the back coves and You'd, you sometimes you'd find a little pot of bait fish that would break off and they'd be up on the shore, right up along the shore and the stripers would be pushing them up. So you'd, you'd kind of have to think, all right, if I can just go find a few fish, you know, smashing bait in the back of a cove and not try and chase down the giant boils of stripers, that's where the you'd find the kind of isolated success. So, um, so a good day might be a bit more limited than if you could just sit there and catch stripers from a boil. Now, is there any such thing as blind casting for stripers or is it kind of a, if you're not on a boil, you're basically out of luck for, for catching one? No, you, you can very much uh, target them um, down deep with, you know, good fish sounders and finders and, and some common sense as to where they would be. But um, it's not nearly as exciting, right? Okay. So <laughs> we all know that, but I, so I don't, I don't, I don't do that too much. Um but yeah, you can, and you can also go down below uh, Lake Mead where they do, um, they plant uh, trout still 
and a couple of the beaches and marinas down there. And you can target some of the really big stripers with, you know, big rainbow trout imitation flies as well. So. Oh, interesting. Are there any other species that you target in Lake Mead or is, are stripers kind of the main quarry there? Uh, it'd be very good carp fishing if you want to do uh, chase carp. Um, there's lots of huge carp in Lake Mead and they're kind of predictable where you can find them too. So, yeah. And kind of moving on to travel, I know we're going to end up kind of talking specifically about Labrador and brook trout, but um, maybe we can spend a couple of minutes just talking about some of the travel you've done. Cause it sounds like, you know, living in a place where fly fishing is not necessarily as uh, readily available as it is elsewhere in the country. sounds like you've done a, a ton of traveling around. So um, do you have any uh, specific places that you, you really like traveling and want to talk about for a little bit? Sure. I mean, probably, I, I mean, I've had the good fortune, my my dad in his retirement actually started his own adventure fly fishing travel business and um, uh, fly fishing adventures is the name of it. And so he would always go uh, really around the world and uh, his pursuit is uh, to catch a hundred permit by the time he's uh, 85. So that's a permit behind me on the wall there, but, um, and he's at 76 right now. So um, those travels took him to Belize a lot. And, um, I would, uh, I still do. I go down there whenever I can, when he goes down and I join him. Um, so that's, uh, I'm very fond of Belize, spent a lot of time down there and know the waters well. Um, while he prefers targeting permit, I prefer looking for a tarpon, which is my favorite game fish. So what about tarpon that draws you in? Oh boy, I just uh, I feel like they embody everything, all the great qualities of a classic game fish, and they're they're big, right? They get big, although you know, arguably the ideal tarpon is like twenty to thirty pounds because they're just a boatload of fun. Um, but uh, they jump, they're strong, they readily take flies. You can sight cast to them, um, and they're just uh, such a powerful fish. Uh, so, so I still get kind of the passion and the. Uh, to, to hook really big tarpon, but, uh, you know, catching the smaller ones is, is certainly easier and a lot <laughs> and arguably more fun too. And uh, how about for trout? Where have you traveled for trout fishing? So I, I do get back to my home waters in Northeast California every year. Um, you know, I just, it's all different, right? I love catching a 12 inch, uh, you know, trout on, on Hat Creek or Bomb Lake on a, you know, on a size 22 midge as much as I do chasing a, you know, giant brook trout in Labrador on a size six stimulator. So it just, it fulfills something different, just different fish, different circumstances. Um, the, uh, I've enjoyed fishing in New Zealand, uh, South Island, um, the, uh, the Fords in uh, Chile, the Patagonia area, and uh, a good amount of fishing around the, the United States as well. Um, but those would probably be my, you know, kind of top trout fishing experiences uh, internationally. Okay. So let's dive uh, a bit into Labrador. And I do want to kind of dig into kind of the logistics of taking a trip there and, and what it's like, but maybe just start with a kind of an overview of brook trout in Labrador. Like what, what makes them so special? You know, why do they get so big? Just kind of give, give me the uh, the overall vibe of, of brook trout in Labrador. Yeah. Well, it's such a, it's such a special place. And I think, you know, until, um, yeah, we can kind of get into the impacts of global warming, whether whether or not you think what the sources are that uh, has impacted fisheries in the far north um, very measurably. Um, but up until probably 10 years ago, you could set your calendar on the hatches in uh, the Minipee Lake system. Um, you know, the Minipee watershed, I, I think, is the 
the premier place in the world to catch a giant brook trout and a brook trout over five pounds, I would call a giant brook trout. And so when we set expectations, having, having been there and had the, the privilege to fish there on eight different trips uh, over the past 25 years, um, we would tell other guests or those that go with us that your goal should be to catch a single brook trout over five pounds on a dry fly. That should be your, your goal going in. Um, and the, uh, the fishery, the lakes there, uh, the Minipi Lakes is a series of interconnected, very shallow lakes connected by, you know, sh connecting streams and um, the lakes themselves, you know, you're talking about water bodies that are maybe seven to eight feet deep on average, having some deeper pockets that, you know, might get 30 or 40 feet deep. Of course, some of the bigger lakes, you can have some some deeper spots, but um, the classic lake, which is Anne Marie Lake, um, which is where Minipi really built its name, um, is a very shallow lake. And uh, the fish that are there, the environment that's there um, is, uh, you know, well, it's under ice first off for half the year, right? It's, it's a very harsh, rugged environment. Um, the logistics of getting to Anne Marie Lodge are, are very challenging, especially if you live on the West Coast. You, you typically have to fly through, you know, a Toronto and go up to St. John's or Halifax and connect all the way to Goose Bay. And then you take a float plane in to the lodge. There's no, there's no roads into the lodges. Okay. Um, so everything has to be brought in by, uh, by float plane or, or helicopter. And so the fishery that's there, um, it was originally discovered by, by the great outdoorsman Lee Wolf. And you're going back to the late 60s when um, he actually worked for, well, initially it was the U.S. Air Force, but then he worked to work for the Newfoundland government in sort of charting and exploring the fishery there for uh, tourism in, uh, in New Newfoundland, uh, Labrador. And so he would literally go in on his float plane, land on these waters, fish a bit and, you know, take notes and, and, and kind of uh, map out the area. And for all of his trips, he, he zeroed in on the, the Anne-Marie Lake and the, the Minipi watershed as sort of the, the, the premier hub. And then it's a very rugged environment. It's very isolated. It's sort of an eat or be eaten environment. Um, you really just have uh, brook trout that, again, because of the very rich aquatic nature of the, uh, the water, the, it's just very rich in nutrients. Um, the insect life is unbelievable. Granted, again, it's frozen under ice for half the year. Um, the lodge season there uh, typically is gonna run from late June to just uh, maybe the first week of September. So it's a very, very tight window. And originally, so Lee Wolf documented all this, and then he got an, an operating permit to run the lodge at Amarie. He partnered with a gentleman named Ray Cooper, and uh, they opened the lodge. It was the first one there. And then um, in the 90s, the Cooper family, no relation to Ray Cooper, uh, Lorraine and Jack um, assumed the operating rights for the lodge and created really a catch and release fishing environment where they um, they tagged every fish, uh, any fish over five pounds, and uh, they would put number number tags on them to try and keep track of where the fish were in the river system, how many of them there were, and um, 
And so then they really opened up what was the first commercial, you know, fishing operation on the system. And uh, they still own it today. The family's had some health challenges in recent years and uh, some challenges coming out of COVID. But um, the watershed is, uh, you know, you have a handful of shallow lakes that are just connected that you you work in a canoe with a guide that ha- you have an outboard on the boat. Um, and uh, the beautiful part about it is that you, the, the, uh, the, these brook trout are very dry fly um, focused. I mean, they are looking to feed on top. And when you get that big, you got to feed aggressively over the time that you have to, to keep the weight on. And um, you just have a, a series of hatches that would occur like uh, clockwork over the years uh, that these fish would uh, dial in on. So it's, it's interesting to me that they can get so large with such a short window. Are they eating under the ice? Like, are they, I assume they're, they have to be eating some other sub- subsurface insect, not a hatching insect, while they're under the ice. And then they, do they just gorge themselves on emerging insects during the summer? And just, it doesn't surprise me that something can survive that, but it surprises me that they can get so huge with such a limited uh, opportunity. Like, do you know why everything has just worked out perfectly to make them so big? Well, the in talking to the guides up there, um, the the thought is that they they kind of huddle up under the because the ice gets really thick on those lakes mm-hmm. and but there are certain parts of the lake where there's a springs in the bottom and the fish will kind of dial into those holes in the depths of winter the water remains a bit warmer and that they can continue to feed I'm sure comparatively limitedly limited in the in the winter time as compared to the summer um, but then through their tagging program, they know that, you know, at one of these five pound brook trout that they, they tag at the beginning of the summer that gets caught at the end of the summer, you know, can put on a pound of weight over the, uh, over those three months. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. That I, I feel like other brook trout don't even get to be a pound. <laughs> yes. No, it, it, it is crazy. I mean, it's, it's just hard to believe it until you're actually, you know, handling or, or, or playing in one of these fish. So, yeah. What hatches go on? You said they go on like clockwork. What hatches are we talking about over the summer? Well, up and up through the early uh, 2000s, um, you know, it was the, the Drake hatches there are like nothing I've ever seen in my life and anywhere else uh, in, in the world, I will say. Um, the, uh, the brown Drake hatch, uh, which historically would occur in kind of middle of July, um, would just be it would just carpet the lakes and it would slowly move down the the system starting up at uh, the lake above Anne Marie is called Monopoly. It would start up there and then within a week it would be down on Anne Marie and that would it would work its way down um, uh, to the subsequent uh, lakes. Um, the brown drake is the biggest mayfly hatch I have ever seen in my life. You could have a um, a square foot of water that you might have you know, 25 uh, mayflies floating on at a given moment. I mean, it, it's just, it's unbelievable and um, very dense. And uh, the, to imitate one of those brown drakes, they're the smaller of the two drakes. The browns though, you can, um, you, you're probably using like a size eight to 10 uh, stimulator or some sort of mayfly imitation. Um, the green drakes would close the season traditionally the last week of July, first week of August. And, uh, again, they'd be, it's the biggest mayfly I've ever seen or 
imitated in my life. Um, and, uh, you know, casting uh, a size two wolf or a size six stimulator, uh, typically yellow, I always found to be the best, um, was the good imitation uh, for these green drakes. And again, they only, they would hatch right at dark. Um, but one of the beauties of fishing so far north in Labrador, the guides have nothing to do and the nights are short. So you are, you are out there all day and fishing, you know, well into the night, um, often by sound of, of uh, working brook trout uh, on these green drakes. It's just, uh, yeah, an unbelievable experience. Are they picky at all? I, I kind of picture that if, if something has to get the majority of its food in a, such a short window, that they'd have to kind of be not picky, but also, you know, fish don't get huge if, uh, if they just take anything in front of them, I guess, or at least in a place that's not so remote. That's, that's the logic I go through. So are they, are they really picky? They're not picky at all. So um, they are very opportunistic feeders and the hatches are, uh, there's so many bugs on the water you know, sometimes you just think, why would that fish pick out my stimulator in all of these natural drakes that were, you know, sitting, you know, around it? Um, and, I, you know, the guide would say that it's just your fly looks a little bit different, but they would sure as heck rise up and, and take in your size six stimulator sitting around 30 other naturals. And you're like, how does that even happen? But they do it. Like you'd look at the water, you'd look at the rises and you'd think it would be a waste of time. But that would be the beauty of um, the hunt, if you will. Uh, the fish rise very measured and ideally you're, you're getting to them at the beginning of a hatch. Um, the water, it filters through the tundra. So it, it kind of has a, a, a peat moss color to it, not not unlike if you're fishing in the mangroves, I mean, sort of tannins and um, there's a fair amount of sediment in the water, but the water's clear. It just, it doesn't look like it's clear because it's so stained, um, but they are not leader shy. And it took me, gosh, it probably took me three trips there to really unprogram my California Spring Creek instincts to, you know, really accept that I was, you know, that I didn't need to do anything other than cast a size six yellow stimulator on three X tippet or two X tippet. And they are not leader shy. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it, the most important thing was, is, was trying to measure where they would rise next. And that was part of the amazing part of the experience is because you're in a canoe, you could actually sight one of these fish a ways out. The guide would cut the outboard. You would row up on the fish. They're, um, they move very measured, rather slow, and you could generally kind of predict where they might rise next and get your fly out on the water. And uh, if you're a good caster, you can, you know, you can really have great success. And uh, they would rise up. And the hard part is they would move so slow and sort of lethargically until you hooked them. Sometimes you'd set the hook too soon or pull the fly out of its mouth. Um, which is still an issue uh, for anyone who goes up there. I think even you go repeatedly because it's just so exciting. So. <laughs> so I'm obviously not asking you how many fish are in the lake, but my, my question is like, how many fish are there? And what I mean by that is when I go to, um, for example, how high Alpine Lake is, is 
you know, the closest thing I've got to this. And you look out and you can sometimes pick out individual fish rising, but a lot of times it just looks kind of like a sea of rises. And if you focus in on one, you can sometimes follow the pattern, but it's not like one rise is moving its way across the lake. It's, it almost looks like it's raining at times. Um, but it sounds like what you're talking about is you see a rise and you're kind of watching that fish go along and presumably there's not a bunch of other rises going on next to it, or you wouldn't necessarily be able to pick each individual fish out. Um, are there few enough of them that you're kind of looking for a string of rises and, and following that individual fish, or are they all kind of rising, you know, all around you? Um, when the, the fish are up and the conditions are right, it's very calm and um, there's a good amount of bugs on the water, say the green drakes. Um, you could be working one fish and while you're working that fish, you're trying to pick out another. And if okay. the conditions are right. Um, so, uh, it, you know, in, through their tagging program, and if you look at, you know, one of the bodies of water like Amory, um, there's not a lot of these fish. I mean, they will typically catch uh, one of those big brookies. Um, it might get caught three times a season. Okay. Um, and uh, with the tagging system that they had, uh, you you know, that could be measured, right? So there would be maybe a few hundred of these um, big brook trout. By big, I mean five to eight pounds in a given watershed. And okay. they, they wouldn't move far. Um, they would, uh, you know, they might go up a lake or down a lake. Um, there was one time where they actually had one of the brook trout reported at the river mouth and actually, um, you know, in brackish water. That was like you know 50 miles away okay um but they don't they don't uh they don't move around much and and they are they are limited i mean there's there's tons of small brook trout in the connector rivers and the feeder streams that's where they hide from the pike and and where they get a little you know they grow up a bit and then they move into the lakes to uh to feed because um if they were there and they were less than you know 14 16 inches um, other brook trout, char, or uh, the pike would be making meals of them. Really? Okay. So that's a, that was going to be my next question is how big do they have to get before they come up into the lake? But you're saying about 16, 16 plus inches is where they will start to move in? I would say over eight trips going in and fishing those lake systems, I have probably caught on one hand uh, on a dry fly uh, fish under a pound. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, the little fish just don't risk being out there in the middle of these lakes. Um, there's a lot of big pike and, uh, even, even the big brookies you get, they are beat up sometimes, you know, they'll have big gashes on them from the pike. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's, it's a harsh environment for sure. What, what other species are in there besides pike and brook trout or are those the only two? So you can also get uh, Arctic char, which are, um, you know, super cool as well. I mean, brook trout are, they're, they're a char. They're not, you know, they're not a trout per se. So, um, but it, it's funny that the big brookies are, are slow and measured in how they rise. Uh, char are much faster and you don't know where they're coming up next. So it's, it's a totally different fish and a different hunt. Um, but you know, when you're chasing a, tr a char typically, as opposed to a brook trout, because they're just, they move quicker, they fight better, um, they get a little bit larger than the brook trout, um, but the same thing, they will take, uh, they readily feed on top and you can get char, um, you know, 10, 11 pounds on, on a dry fly, um, which is, you know, amazing, so. 
So do you do anything different to target them? Or is it kind of like you cast out and you you might know if you have one on, but you didn't actually do anything different in the process itself? Yeah, same gear, same flies. It's just what you come across. In some years, um, the, cha- the char might be a lot more plentiful. Um, and some years, there you might not see any. So um, don't have an answer to why that is, but um, they're, they're pretty inconsistent as to how they... They work in with the brook trout, but they do, um, they give you some really hot runs, you know, a brook trout will slug it out, you know, not, not long runs, but, uh, the char will, uh, you know, they'll, they'll run you hard. There's a much different fight. Yeah. Do you ever target the pike when you're up there? I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, there are times when nothing's going on, but there's, you know, you can always fall back on pike or if the weather's quite bad, you can fall back on pike. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Are you using like what you might use for pike anywhere else? Or are you trying to cater to the fact that these pike are probably feeding on small-ish? I know small is relative here, but brook trout. Um, are you using any flies that are trying to mimic the the smaller brook trout? Yeah, I think you could say that. I mean, I, I, again, my, my pike fishing is mostly limited to Labrador. So um, there it's just, you know, really large uh, streamers, you know, around... Um, they had lily pads, which I always found odd. But later in the summer, there's a lot of lily pads that come up. And, you know, on one hand, you can be chasing a brook trout on one side of the lily pads, and and then there might be pike on the other, you know. So, um, uh, but uh, yeah, the later you get in the summer, the more robust the lily pad growth is. Okay. Now walk me through like a typical day here, because you said the days are really, really long. So, you know, what time are you getting up? What time are you kind of getting in the boat and what is the kind of the cycle of a day like there in terms of fishing? So it's, um, again, being very remote and not much, uh, not much else to do, but fish for the guides as well. You, you get up, you have breakfast and then you're typically out on the water, you know, nine 30 ish. Um, and then you fish, uh, you usually take your lunch out with you. You fish until dinner. Um, you come back to the lodge maybe around four o'clock. You have dinner. You may be at the lodge until six thirty, and then you're back out until eleven. Um, just you know, sometimes later. It just depends on exactly what's going on, what's hatching, and if you can hear the fish rising and if the moon's up. So, um, I had, uh, I mean, one of my more, you know, I had one day up there where I I ended up catching 53 pounds of brook trout across eight trout. And I finished that day. It was in the, the green Drake hatch was really, um, uh, was really strong and we hit it just right. And it, it was, it was pitch black. I mean, you, you, you could not pitch black, but I mean, you could hardly see anything, but you could hear the fish still working. Mm-hmm. And, um, there was, uh, I, I probably landed three fish after dark and there was one in particular we could hear him working in the back of this cove but we were working our way to him because there were other fish in between us and and that really big brook brook trout but sure as heck it just kept working in that same 200 foot area we finally got our way back to it and uh it ended up being an eight and a quarter pound brook trout biggest one i'd ever caught on a size six yellow stimulator and um yeah very uh just such a memorable uh, evening when when that's going on. What's the biggest brook trout they've tagged there? Do you know? You know the you know I meant to look up the latest uh, record um, 
so the, there was a time when the um, a handful of the uh, the world records were were on the books from out of the Minipi system. Um, I'm going to say nine and a half pounds, maybe. Okay. Um, I, I yeah, it's been a while since I looked at the records, but um, uh, there's you know uh, an eight pounder, especially at the end of the season. Uh, you know, it was a gorgeous, uh, beautiful fish, but not, you know, not unheard of at all. I mean, there's usually a few eight plus pounders caught uh, at the tail end of the season after they've been feeding all, all summer on, on the uh, on the bugs. I know you said that one fish in particular gained, you know, a pound over the summer, but do you notice the fish getting larger as the summer goes on? Is that uh, like a trend that happens where if you if you were to go there and say, I'm going to catch the biggest fish I possibly can. You would want to aim for that like late August time period because it's kind of toward the end of the season or is it, you know, is, is that not something you'd really put much stock into? Um, up until 2010, 2011, I would. Um, and the guides would generally agree. Um, what has happened in, in the more recent years is these, these hatches that have occurred on, you know, you know, a, a clockwork as far as the calendar goes, you know, green drakes, first week of August, uh, brown drakes, you know, July 10th, um, that the water has warmed. And I think, you know, the implications of global warming in the in the Northeast on watersheds like this um, first started to reveal themselves in these, you know, really shallow water environments where, you know, the water increasing a, a, te- a degree or, you know, radically two degrees. Um, and all of a sudden that, that hatch cycle, which was so reliable based on our traditional calendar was, was kind of blown out of the water. Our last, uh, the last two trips we, we booked there, you were getting brown drakes and green drakes hatching together, like in the first week of July. So we, we had actually pulled our our trip all the way forward by a month over those 25 years uh, because the hatch cycle had moved forward because the water temperatures had warmed. Um, so, I mean, it was just, uh, we had the, I think it was the second to last trip I'd been there. It was just a smorgasbord. It was unbelievable. I mean, you'd, you'd have, you know, brown drakes leading into green drakes with the caddis flies. Everything would be happening in the first two weeks of July. And then by the time, you know, you get towards the uh, the end of July, there was nothing left to hatch. I mean, even the even the caddis activity had, had fallen off to virtually nothing. Um, so, you know, how that has shaped in the last uh, four years, I don't know. I have not uh, returned to the lodge after COVID. I was there the summer uh, before COVID. Okay. And maybe this, maybe what you just said is one example of it. I'm, I'm curious if there's any more examples of um, people at the lodge noticing changes from warming temperatures? Because I feel like, um, you know, it's, it's obviously well known that that's happening, but for any individual just living, uh, you know, away from an area that's being so acutely affected, it's it's easy to not really notice, like, okay, it's a little bit warmer this year or whatever. We had a, a higher high on this day than in pre- previous years, but I feel like um, people above some latitude seem to have more personal experience with, like, how changes are actually manifesting. Um, have you heard any other descriptions from people up at the lodge about like how things are changing over the years as it gets warmer besides just the, the hatches moving forward like that? Well, it, you know, on Anne-Marie, they had um, the original lodge on Anne-Marie was just an incredibly, uh, it had so much character. It was very small. I mean, the only, uh, 
only uh, it could take eight anglers and you know the lodge itself was um it, it had a classic feel to it but it was also very small and um you know the walls were pretty thin and uh you know like if you were the newbie there you would know not to get the you you would rush rush off the float plane and you would get one of the rooms to the back you wouldn't get one of the one by the kitchen because you know it would just there'd be a lot of noise in the front um but in when when the coopers uh closed the original lodge and built a new lodge there um it took them you know, again, the fishing season is three months while the construction season's four months and you got to fly everything in. Right. So um, it took uh, probably at least four years for them to complete the uh, what is considered the new lodge at Anne Marie. And um, the uh, the snow would they'd be able to get in sooner. Um, the snow melt would be uh, would occur uh, sooner uh, and they'd be able to get in and you know start working. Um, more frequently on the lodge upkeep. Uh, they, have, they, they subsequently built um, a couple other lodges and then they, they've kind of gone through rotation now. There were, there were four different lodge buildings at one point. Now I believe there's just two operating um, because it, it's really hard, as you can imagine, keeping those tiny lodges going, keeping the whole thing profitable and, uh, and having it fit into the fishing season and having to, you know, use the float plane to get clients in and out everywhere. So um, those lodges have a shelf shelf life, no doubt about it. And they, they would always have trouble with bears getting into them <clears throat> during the off season too. So, so I want to um, maybe wrap up with kind of some logistics. Like if, if someone were to try to do one of these trips on their own, it sounds like DIY is not really a thing in this area. Is that, is that a good, like first, first question to to get past it it is um you know you can't uh, you just can't access these systems um uh, unless you're uh, have a float plane and and you're staying at the lodge there's no not really any shoreline and the you know the black flies and the mosquitoes are epically bad um so you got to be ready for that and uh it's just access is incredibly limited so okay yeah. And what is the uh, response to black flies and mosquitoes? Like, how do how do you keep those away? Um, uh, DEET all the time, just layers of it. So wearing mosquito netting is uh, not a bad idea. I mean, sometimes they're just worse than others. Typically, when you go on a portage, um, when you hike up to one of the other lake systems, uh, you'll have to hike through the tundra. That's when it can be really bad. Okay. Um, Often when you're out on the water in the canoe, it's, it's, it's certainly manageable. And it's also, it's typically pretty cold. So, you know, you're covered up too. So, but um, I swear those black flies have an intelligence that uh, you don't see other places. They just, they <laughs> find it. They just find it wherever you don't put a uh, deet. So, yeah. All right. And logistics of getting there. I remember you said flying through Toronto and then eventually taking a float plane. But, you know, if someone wants to fly in there, what's kind of the, the steps of arriving at the lodge, you know, if you're flying out of any given big city in the U.S.? Yeah, you should plan um, two days to get there because uh, uh, you get into Goose and then, you know, the weather is very changeable, right? You're, you're way up there in the northeast, just just below Greenland. And um, it's, uh, you know, one day it might, might get over 80 degrees and two days later you might have a snowstorm. So um, it, can, it can really vary widely. Um, so going in, you, you allow a travel day to get into Goose Bay 
and then um, they ha- they fly you out of Goose Bay to the lodge, you know, based on the weather and based on coordinating the different float planes. Um, so, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're spending two days to get into the lodge, but then when you get there, usually you can go fishing that afternoon, which is, which is nice. Um, conversely coming out, same thing. If the weather, it, probably half the trips I've been there, I haven't been able to get out on the day that I originally okay. planned, um, because of weather in at the lodge. So, which you just have to go in with that expectation. And worst case is you wait half a day for the float plane, doesn't come, you go fishing, for, you know, for, uh, once they kind of give up on the rotation for the day. So, yeah. So do you need to kind of um, give yourself a buffer of like, say you've got a main flight out of there, you know, out of Toronto or wherever back to, you know, Nevada, Las Vegas, near where right. you are. Do you need to kind of give yourself a buffer and say, you know, I, I might make my float plane might make it back days in advance and I might have to find something to do in Toronto. But if I don't, then I've got those couple days to kind of absorb a, a delay in the float plane. Or do you like, how does, how does that work with the airlines? Um, not, not really knowing when you're going to be able to make it to the airport. Yeah. Well, it's all about Goose Bay. So once you get into Goose, um, you know, that's, that part's usually straightforward. So okay. the delays generally occur going from Goose Bay out to the respective lodges. So um, and, and the Coopers are also very good at, uh, you know, they're used to it. So, you know, they're quick to, you know, work with travel agents, work with schedules, work with the airlines to, to get, um, get their clients accommodated because gotcha. it's, it's, it's more the norm than not. So. And what is the process of booking a float plane? Like, is that, I assume that's not. Uh, an extension of the other airline you'd be flying in. That's something separate that you'd book. And, and if so, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, the Coopers, uh, as part of the packages, you know, they're week-long trips. Um, the airfare on the float plane and the coordination of all that's covered by the, oh, okay. the outfitter. Um, so they, they keep that real easy. Uh, the Coopers uh, have their own uh, have their own float plane too, but they typically use... Uh, the beavers are the smaller ones. The otters are the ones you'd rather fly in because um, okay. they're just a little bit bigger. And um, they, they contract with the uh, firms out of Goose Bay to operate the otters. Okay, cool. And then uh, how about gear? Uh, like what weight, what weight rods are you using for these brook trout? Um, I, pike, I assume, are kind of like standard. If you're fishing for pike anywhere, you could use that rod. But what about these giant brook trout? I would have no idea what size rod to bring for that. Yeah, so when I first started, I mean, I... I used a five weight, which um, wasn't uh, the right rod for the fish or the fishermen. I mean, it, it took a while to, you know, a, a six or a seven makes it easier to punch those big flies. I mean, a size two gray wolf. I mean, it's crazy. You're, you know, so, um, so having a, a six, I, I usually use a six weight. Um, okay. It also, when you, if you're fighting a, a seven pound brook trout, having a little backbone, because they will just go in and sit on the bottom under the canoe and you're, you're kind of, you know, you're just kind of, you, you got to have a little lifting power. And uh, so having a, a stiffer rod, at least a six is definitely best for uh, the fish as well. And just getting okay. it in, getting it in quicker. Yeah. And then I assume all floating lines, if it's pretty much uh, dry fly fishery, is that, is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, you don't have to worry about, again, you know, the color of the line or anything else. I mean, uh, just having a line that shoots well, and um, <clears throat> the better you can cast, the more successful you're going to be. Um, uh, having said that, you know, there, there'll be times when these brook trout will be, you know, the guides work in the canoe with a, with a paddle and, 
you might be 30 feet, you know, from these fish. So, um, but if you can, you know, if you can cast it 80, 90, a hundred feet, that just opens things up for sure. So. And then any other, are there any other gear considerations that you would deem as important? Like, like, do you bring waders at all or is it strictly from the canoe and it's not even worth bringing something like that along? Yeah, no, good, good question. Um, so I, I just wear waders all the time. It's just usually the weather's changeable on every day. Usually it's going to rain at some point and it just allows you to be geared up appropriately. Um, if you do a portage, if you're going from one one lake system to another, you have to hike. Waders are, are big plus. They protect you from the bugs as well. Um, there are a few spots where you can get out and wade. Um, you better be per, rather sure-footed. The guides don't like to do it, but I've been there enough. I know a few holes that I'll I'll just be like, hey, let me out here at you know at uh, you know this certain run, and I know where there there'll be a hole or two where there could be a brook trout you know hold up, and um, I can go chase after them. Um, which I kind of like, I like jumping in and, you know, kind of clambering over some of the rocks, but, um, there's not, not much waiting though. And you, you could avoid it entirely. There are some of those, uh, some people have been going up there for so long and there are, I mean, my dad's 80. So, I mean, it's, you know, clambering around on those rocks is not, uh, (laughs) not, not, you know, not great for some. So. Now, when you say hop out, does that mean in the lake itself, there's like some shallower areas you can get out or in the streams that connect the lakes? Yeah, like on an outflow, uh, beaching the canoe above the outflow and then hiking down into the outflow. Gotcha. Um, That was the other thing. I had never caught a a trout on a a mouse or a, you know, a a lemming or anything like that. And (laughs) Labrador was the first and it just kind of blew me away. I mean, it's just an incredible experience seeing them come up and wake behind it. And you're like, oh, that's that's a pike. It's not a trout. And, you know, there you are with a seven and a quarter pound brook trout with your mouth, your mouse hanging out of its mouth when you land it. It's just, uh, you know, it's just still kind of mind blowing. So that's crazy. I I didn't know the brook trout did that. Even at that that large size, I wouldn't have guessed that they were that predatory, but yeah, there's, yeah. Some of the, um, the inflows outflows, there's some that are better than others, but if you fish those and they hadn't been hit by another one of the anglers, Usually there would be one big brookie that would have it staked out and um, you could, you could get it up on a, on a, you know, a big uh, tractor pattern like that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have uh, any, any future trips planned here? So we haven't, you know, I, um, you know, after COVID the, the complications, you know, for so many years too, the, the prime hatch windows were just booked. I mean, someone would literally have to die in order for a slot to open for you to get into one of the prime windows in the nineties, the two thousands, and even into the, uh, <clears throat> up through 2013, 14. Um, then they, they opened the bigger lodge, which helped a little bit, but, um, uh, once COVID hit, they ended up with a big backlog and they had to make good on, you know, a lot of the trips and it kind of pushed people out two years on being able to go up there. And then the Cooper family had some, some health challenges as well. And, um, they actually didn't even open the uh, um, uh, Amory Lodge last summer, and I believe they had uh, limited uh, this summer. And so I'm, I'm hoping they'll be back to it full scale and full bore uh, next year and then, you know, the subsequent years. Um, they may end up selling the operation as well. I, I don't know. Um, but it's always been a family affair, and uh, it was um, a very special place, and I'm not... Uh, 
the fish are still there. I guarantee it. Uh, unless they, you know, unless the water temperature became such an issue, they, you know, they, they moved out into different watersheds, but, um, I'm ready to go back. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so it sounds kind of like a heaven on earth up there. Every, everyone I've talked to says it's just incredible. It, it really is. I mean, I've, I've had the good fortune of catching a lot of big trout and great, you know, amazing circumstances around the world. And there's something about those Labrador brookies that uh, <laughs> just set it, it sets it apart. It, it is truly an adventure. It really is. Is it um, like the wildest place you fished? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's just, there's just nothing else there. And, um, you know, it's, uh, so it's very, very isolated and it, it was probably in about 2012, they actually ended up finally getting Wi-Fi there, which kind of bummed me out. I was like, no, don't, you know, don't do that. Um, but, uh, you know, so they do, they do have, uh, you know, Wi-Fi now at the lodge, which you have to, right. But I remember still kind of being bummed about it and, um, not telling, you know, my work or anything that in fact they had Wi-Fi for the first year they had it. So. <laughs> well, as long as there's no phone service around and they keep it just to the lodge, then hopefully it's, uh, it's more of a help than a, a hindrance at that point. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Once you, once you leave the radius of the lodge, you're, uh, you're, you're out of range quick. So, Yeah. Well, Scott, this has been uh, a ton of fun. I, I've had actually quite a few people talk about um, like brook trout and Labrador, but I never get sick of hearing about it because it just sounds like it doesn't sound real. You know, when people talk about it, like you talk about the, the brook trout eating mice and stuff like that. It just doesn't doesn't compute with like basically the rest of the I, lower 48 implies that we're talking about the U.S. I know we're not, but, you know, down here, it just doesn't exist in any form. So to hear about it is always uh, a treat. And uh, I appreciate you coming on today to fill me in on it and get me excited about maybe doing a trip like that someday. Yeah, no, I, I love talking about it. And uh, yeah, special place, nothing, nothing else like it. So I, I hope they can preserve it as is and as was. So Sounds good, me too. Well, thank you, Scott. Um, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, let's keep in touch. All right. Thanks, Katie. All right. That's a wrap. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you want to find all the other episodes as well as show notes, you can find those on fishuntamed.com. Um, you'll also find a contact link there if you want to reach out to me. And you can also find me on Instagram at fishuntamed. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can give it a follow on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. And if you'd like to leave a review, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, but otherwise, thank you all again for listening. I'll be back here in two weeks with another episode. Take care, everybody.